0: and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are joined by Elena Sichenko. Elena works at St. Petersburg State University in Russia, where she is the supervisor of a program on Chinese law and language and also a master's program on transnational legal practice. Elena has an impressive CV, and I would not do it the justice it deserves if I were to simply read that CV out loud. So Elena, if you could introduce yourself, give us an overview of who you are, where you're from, what your career has been like, and some of the main things we should know about you.
1: First of all, I would like to thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be a part of the podcast, and it's my first experience to be speaking in the podcast. I liked the start of your talk. You said that I have an impressive CV. Thank you for that. Uh, Speaking very briefly about what I've done in my life, um, I think one of the key things is to defend a PhD in Italy while being a Russian lawyer with a Russian legal background. And then I can mention my passion for international labor law, my passion for uh, labor rights and for protection of human rights on the level of the UN and also on the level of the regional level of the Council of Europe. I love these topics. Also, some of my activities at the university might mention as well, because I supervise two programs. You mentioned the undergraduate program, which uh, is called Law with the Advanced Study of Chinese Languages Law. So basically it is law, and they study at the same time Russian law and Chinese law. Another program, which I also supervise as a master program, something new at my faculty, is a taught-in-English program called Transnational Legal Practice. I also love this this part of my job, and I'm very inspired to develop further both programs. And uh, finally, what might be interesting to mention is my recent experience uh, working for the International Labour Organization. I was the external consultant of the ILO, and prepared the report about the forced labor in Pakistan which i recently delivered in islamabad so these are the key things which might perhaps be of interest for 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 others
0: there there's a lot there and let's start with sicily uh, i i've been to to sicily i've been i've been lucky enough to to go there a couple of times and 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 to catania specifically your experience there really jumped out at me. So if we do know more than, than talk about Sicily, I think already this will be uh, a, a great, great podcast. So let's um, dig into this. What motivated you to, to first of all, go study in, in Italy, right? I mean, it's, it's a great country. I can think of, of many reasons to, to go there, but, but still with, with the different choices that you have in Europe alone, right? What made you want to go to Sicily?
1: It was really a very cool experience full of everything, but I would start with, uh, with the beginning, uh, telling about the reasons for making a PhD in Italy, which might sound a little bit weird, but romantic as well, because this is a story of how love uh, reproduced itself in, in the PhD thesis. It started with a touristic trip to Catania, and when I was walking around Catania, I found the University of Catania and fell in love immediately. So I was just—I feeling that I do belong there, you know, in this medieval building with the sculptures, with this wonderful garden. I just felt that I don't want to go out of here. Rather, I would like to do something there. And I was lucky to meet that there was an opportunity of a kind of internship, very brief one, which was funded by uh, together by the Minister of Education in Russia and Italy. So I've applied for this uh, possibility. And one of the conditions to apply for this possibility was uh, to receive the letter uh, from someone from the faculty in Catania. So thus I met my supervisor, whom I love, respect, and and really admire, Professor Bruno Caruso. So he supported me for the scholarship, which I did not get. And then when I came back to him again, uh, he said, and don't you want to try to enter PhD uh, course here? And I've asked myself, and really why don't why don't I want to try? So there was a competition. There were twelve people for just one place funded by the government. And I was the first one to pass these exams. It was so funny because the part of the exam was the exam in English and I was speaking Russian, uh, English, a little bit Italian, and um professors were definitely not speaking Russian. So I had to pass an exam translating from English into Italian, which I didn't know that well, but I think that they were very confident, perhaps in my um, other competences, because I already had, by that time, several publications, and I was so happy to know that I passed this examination, that I will, make this study for three years in Sicily. And thus the whole family, because at that time I already had two kids, the whole family moved to Catania. So we lived close to Catania. My daughter started her school in in Italian. My son started his kindergarten in Italian. So the whole family had, you know, kind of new life and the new fresh breath of, of air. Uh, the first year was really uh, full of very positive emotions but then I started to feel to feel that uh there was something what I missed there so it was the time for me to understand that I do really belong to Russian society. So I missed a lot uh, my Russian colleagues, I missed a lot the atmosphere in Russia, Russian culture, St. Petersburg in particular. And this is why the last two years I was just waiting for the time to, to, when I will receive my PhD and will be able to come to come back home to Russia. Also, something interesting, which might be said about Sicily, that in the beginning, when we decided to move, people said, but how can we move to Sicily? There is mafia. What are you going to do there? It was so funny, because I was also listening to those people thinking, and what if there was really mafia? So I started to, to speak to my neighbors uh, that time. And in the beginning, they said, but what do you say? You've just watched too much, too, too many films, too many American films about Italian mafia. <laughs> it is already outdated, everything is fine. <laughs> so I believed them and I was calm. I thought that it is really, it only exists now in cinema. But then, you know, it was funny to know that uh, there is still mafia because I've heard In some time, when already neighbors became confident, I've heard some stories that, for example, on another street, there was one mafia was killed by the the troop, and so on. (laughs) So, you know, it is interesting how everything evolves with time, and the more confident people become in you, the more information you get about the society itself. I also had some experience of applying uh, Italian labor law Because once, um, for example, the man who had to repair my car and whom I already paid, he told me that he did it. And while I have noticed that something is wrong, so I thought that hmm, seems like he didn't do anything. And then I found out that he really didn't do anything. So he had to change the part of the car, but he just paid it and, and this is all. I tried to speak to him and he just ignored me. I said, okay. I will check the criminal code, the penal code of Italy. I checked it, that there is a crime, a fraud. I went to the police and said, I want to, <laughs> to inform you that the crime has been committed. <laughs> and it was funny to see the reaction of the policeman. He said to me, oh, girl, come down. <laughs> now we will call him and we will resolve this problem. <laughs> so he asked me the num- the telephone number of this, uh, this man. He called him immediately, so just I was sitting in front of him and told me, "Hello," and told him, "Hello, this is a police officer. We have this problem. Could you kindly uh, solve this problem, pay her back the money she paid you?" And it was solved immediately. So you see how the system can function properly, so properly in the sense of efficiency, not properly in the sense of complying with the relevant norms. I love very much this experience.:
0: One follow-up. In, in, for example, in your case, when you were in in Sicily, how did people treat you? I, I think that certainly in the case of Americans, uh, we we carry with us everything that the country has 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 done and the the reputation it has, and and certainly in recent history, there's there's always something going on. I I had to live in in China during the time of the Iraq War, for example, and that was something that was always hanging over conversations. If you were to speculate as to what the experience of living in Sicily would be like for, say, an American or, or perhaps a, a Chinese person. Where would um, Russians fall in that spectrum?
1: Well, I think that the treatment would be the same uh, whether it would be a Russian person, as in my case, or Chinese or an American. Because, you know, Sicilian society is um, very open to foreigners from, from one point of view in the sense that they really, they are really happy to see you. They are really interested to know uh, something new about your country. They are very hospitable, um, and it was really a pleasure because in the very beginning, all the neighbors they 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 always treated us very good. They always brought something to eat. For example, um, my neighbor who is my dear friend until now, he brought a lot of vegetables. You know, you might uh, open the door in the morning and find that the enormous bag full of uh, fruits full of oranges or then enormous bag full of vegetables and so on so for me it was uh, really astonishing how people might be um so interested and so hospitable and so open in respect of a foreigner
0: That's great I'd like to talk more about about your work but but before we do that as a as a preliminary question how your interest in, in, in labor law, specifically in international labor law, arose. All of us uh, in the profession have our specialties, and sometimes that's the result of a strong passion that we feel about something. In some cases, it might just be circumstances that, that lead you on a particular track. But in your case, what were the factors that shaped your, your career in the form that it's, that it's taken?
1: I think that I have to start from very far answering this question, because I loved always when I was a child, when I was a teen, I loved uh, reading a lot, and I loved these classical fiction books as Dickens, Hugo, Zola, and so on, and uh, they often raise the problem of inequality, of social injustice, and I've always felt that uh, I do really have a great interest in this issue. So when I was studying at the university, labor law particularly struck me because I was feeling that uh, employee is a part um, that really needs protection from the state. And for me, it was interesting to see how different states, they have different mechanisms for this protection. Well, I don't speak about American one. (laughs) Uh, Better to focus on the European countries, uh, which do really have very efficient instruments to to ensure the better balance between the economic interests of the employer and the social interests of an employee. Uh, another point was then when I switched to international labor law um, that very often I saw that some injustice or, 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 ba- or better, a lot of injustice still might be within the national system, national judicial system, when even though your rights are evident, you cannot succeed um, in your case because of the false interpretation, because of some some other problems. And when I knew about the cases on labor rights, which were considered by the European Court of Human Rights, and when I've seen that it is really helping people not only to win their own case, but also to uh, reconstruct the whole system. So, you know, the, the judgment of the European Court of Human Rights might be a great challenge for the whole system. And in some cases in Russia, in the field of, for example, social security, it really uh, was the first push for the Russian uh, Federation to change certain norms in the legislation. So I was thinking, wow, this is a great power, I mean, international labor law, and how I would like to know more about it. And the more I, the, more, the deeper I get into the problematic of international labor law, the more passionate I become. And recently I have very keen interest in the free trade agreements because a free trade agreements is another way to push forward uh, international labor standards. So, for example, there was an agreement between the EU and Canada and under this agreement um, the parties undertook to ratify the fundamental conventions of the ILO and Canada did ratify two of them, even though before they did not. So I see uh, this instrument as something very efficient to um, to promote further the standards of protection of workers' rights. And I'm very inspired with the opportunity to challenge the way of things, in particular in developing countries.
0: There's a lot we could talk about regarding regarding this topic. Maybe one way of approaching it would be by discussing your experience in Pakistan. That, that's also something that jumps out at me. Could you tell us a little more about what you did in Pakistan and how the, the experience was?
1: Well, you pointed absolutely correctly that it was a great experience. It was very interesting, it was challenging, and at the same time, it was kind of terrifying. Because to tell the truth, it was my first experience of a research when I was uh, going through different papers, reports, and I was literally crying because uh, I've never thought that things uh, about which I was reading to really exist in the 21st century. So for me, it was it was something unthinkable, unbelievable, that still, I don't know, uh, people may sell the part of their bodies to, to pay the debt. Uh, to be able to free their children from bonded labor uh, that still uh, women can be forced uh, to marry. For example, there was a big scandal in Pakistan that a lot of Chinese came to the country. They were false marriages. Well, they were real marriages, but they were brought down to China and sold to prostitution. And there were around 1,000 women, young women, who were sold like this. And uh, this is why when I was working uh, over this report, I opened uh, the new problems which I thought are not existing anymore. And I also referred um, the importance of of international labour law, the importance of the international society, and the needs and also the ways of putting pressure on developing countries from the part of the international society. I also re-evaluated the, the, the value of NGOs, uh, and I think that um, there is a lot of potential for them to put pressure on multinationals who are working in developing countries and to put pressure also on, um, or not pressure, to bring information before the human rights bodies. To, and to let people know what is really happening in the country, it was really a very challenging experience. Now, thinking, comparing, for example, uh, four years when I was writing PhD in Catania, uh, it was also quite a hard work. And comparing with uh, eight months of writing the report for the ILO about Pakistan, I would say that the, the letter was much more difficult and much more, much more challenging.
0: Fascinating. These. Uh... Materials. A lot of this is, is is very sensitive. How was it that you you were able to to carry out your your work? What kind of challenges did you have in terms of having access to 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 information? I mean, what was the level of of transparency? I mean, was this a situation where the the authorities in Pakistan were were fully cooperative, or was that one of the challenges as well?
1: It was quite challenging. Uh... Because the information about the topic, which was the object of my research, I mean, about forced labor, so the the relevant regulation. And forced labor is a very complex issue. So it covers the problems of migrant labor. It covers the problem of sexual exploitation, of child labor. Um, And very often I found out that the information I need might be found only on the sites of international organizations, so what was striking for me. Nothing was found on the sites of the government, for example, or labor departments in Pakistan or little was found. And it was striking because I was thinking that mostly this information should serve for for the society, for the national society, for people who live in this country and not for the international society. In the same time, uh, during the project, we interviewed uh, labor departments and they were very cooperative. So they were quite open. They were ready to, to spend time with us and to answer the questions. We also had information from the Human Rights Committee of Pakistan, and we were speaking with different NGOs. So overall, I would not say that they wanted to create a kind of imaginary uh, vision of pakistan no rather rather they they contributed to to my perception of pakistan as something something real something living something
0: vibrant interesting really interesting and and i mean forced labor that is a topic that we could spend the entire podcast let's 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 pivot to 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 China I'd like to hear more about the the program that uh, you're supervising at, at st. Petersburg State University how did this program arise how how did it get started give us a little bit more detail about how it works and what it's doing and, and what has the experience been like uh, at, at a human level you know maybe maybe you have some some anecdotes about students who
1: well, I will start with a sad thing. I have no anecdotes about this program. <laughs> uh, but rather, uh, you know, it's now difficult to judge because we had our first uh, graduates uh, last year in, in the COVID. So it's very difficult to judge <laughs> whether they had an opportunity to work in China or to work in Chinese uh, firms here in, in St. Petersburg or in Moscow. Uh, however, I think, and I, I'm I'm pretty sure, that the experience they had the knowledge they had would be very helpful because in my in my own life i have understood that the more languages you know the more beautiful the world becomes it has much more much more colors when you know an additional language and when you are familiar with an additional culture at at least and also starting with this point of view i would uh use other means to to for the publicity of my program. So this program started uh, five years ago. Uh, It was an idea of the rector because at that time, the economic relations with China were popping up, uh, the the level of trade was increasing, and uh, we got aware about the need to have experts both in Russian law and Chinese law, because there were a lot of... Uh, cross-border business arising also in Russia and in China. And another thing is that to know the law of another country, it is better also to be able to read its law, so to have an opportunity to open the initial source and, and read it yourself and try to understand it yourself, rather than relying on some secondary sources. This is why the idea was developing as teaching them Chinese law, and teaching them Chinese language. So they start learning Chinese from the very first year, and they have the course of Chinese throughout four years and quite a lot of hours each semester. Then, definitely, the focus is made on legal subjects, and each legal subject, so each branch of law, is given in the following way. So they have, for example, labor law of Russia and China. So first, they receive information about Russian labor law, then uh, we have we organized uh, twice a year, so in the end of uh, fall semester and the end of spring semester, weeks of Chinese law. So we have very good relations with the best law, law universities in China, as Chinese University of Political Science and Law, as the University, the University of Beijing. And the best experts, well, they came to us before COVID and delivered uh, normal, real-life lectures which were very appreciated by the students because it's very interesting always to switch also not only from one professor to another, but also from professor coming from one culture, then to professor comes from another culture, and legal culture as well. Uh, Now we organize these lectures in online format, uh, which I would say is really beneficial because we are more free in the organization of these lectures. And it is much easier for the professors as well, because it's much easier to find two hours for lecturing than to find five days to come to St. Petersburg and stay for, for a certain period for, for for the lecturing on spot. Um, and also, uh, when at the, at the end of the course, we try to make some comparative analysis. So once they have knowledge of Russian part, then receive information on Chinese part, we can finally compare. And this is mostly, um, the the time when the lectures are particularly interesting because you can analyze the difference and you can think about why are these differences so important and why did they come up, Uh, why the same question is uh, decided differently in two cultures or, or is perceived differently in these two cultures.
0: This is great. This is fascinating. I mean, I'm I'm intrigued. I have so many questions, uh, both about the the program, but also just about the, the related topic. So, so let me let me just start with this. You know, as part of our work at at Harris Bricken, we're we're a very international law firm. A lot of our work involves cross jurisdictional work, um, where issues like this uh, or, or 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 frameworks like this are very useful, right? You have you have to take into account. The law of of one country and the law of another, and then sort of bring them together. And one thing that we find, uh, certainly in the case of China, right, is that is that there is um there, there's there's a considerable gap. Like for example, if you if you were to ask an American lawyer to come up with a with a contract, and you ask Chinese lawyer to do the same thing, probably the two Resulting documents are are going to be quite quite different, just just in terms of of the the entire approach to law. If you were to to conduct the same analysis between Chinese and Russian law, please correct me if if if, if I'm wrong. But I would assume that the two systems are probably a little bit closer to each other than say the Chinese and the American system. Because of, I'm assuming, because of the, the the closer connections to to the civil law tradition that that both Russia and China have, and also because, of course, some of some of uh, China's legal system comes from its its socialist tradition, right? And 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 Russia has has undergone that as well. So, um, is is it fair to say that the starting point when you are doing this comparative work, the, the Russian and Chinese systems might be slightly closer, at least, than, say, the the Chinese and American systems?
1: They are definitely closer, but in the same time, there are huge differences, for sure. Uh, they are closer because they take roots in the civil system. Also, because, um, uh, for example, in China, um, the key issues are decided by the party and then are translated in- into the legislation. And basically, the ruling of the party... Um, are forming the law. So um, in, in Russia, slightly the same because the the main ruling party is the party of the president, and um, and also um, what is um, what is discussed within the party is then translated into law.
0: So let's talk about Russia and China more more generally i'd like to to hear your thoughts on on the the relationship between the two countries not, not necessarily at the political level although that's interesting i mean certainly i'm curious as to as to the deeper connection between between the countries
1: i would say that speaking about relations between china and russia we should be mindful uh, about the general situation on the international level so we know that both russia and china uh face a lot of sanctions, right? and in a, to a certain extent they are just pushed <laughs> one towards another because uh, there are a lot of sanctions uh, from the US, from the EU upon Russia, there are these um, problematic relations between the US and China, and the, these are the two centers of strength uh, in Eurasia, it's Russia and, uh, and China, so basically it seems like they don't have no choice but to try to be close together. And um, I would say that relations with Russia are definitely in the focus of um, universities in China, because we had before COVID delegations from the key universities in in China, from all the provinces. And uh, the same might be said about Russian universities as well the 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 near development of the program which i supervise is a great illustration of the interest also of the authorities because this program is financed by the the russian federation so it means the interest of the authorities towards developing relations with china we don't have programs law and language of france or germany or the us so i think that's a good evidence of the level of relations the level of confidence and um and the deep belief in the perspective of these relations. By the way, we have the same programs at St. Petersburg University in economics, as far as I remember, in sociology and some others. So it's not something unique, I mean, the program in law. Also, in other fields of science, there is also tight cooperation. Another illustration, but always always within my sphere, within higher education, is the creation of joint universities. In China was created a joint university uh, with Moscow State University and they have built the campus and uh, for me it was surprising to see that this campus really looks like the uh, Moscow State University, you know, the main building, this famous building, which is one of the most perhaps um, famous views of Moscow, the same in miniature was built in China. And they have several uh, several faculties and uh, already two or three years uh, are teaching there. And the staff is joined, so partly they have staff from Moscow University and partly they have staff from, from Chinese University. Another more recent initiative is also building of the campus of the joint university in Harbin. So St. Petersburg University concluded an agreement with um, Harbin authorities and with the University of Harbin. And now they are building the new campus and they are going to uh, announce the undergraduate programs in a while. All this illustrates that the countries are really uh, perceived as friends or as partners not only in the field of economics, in the field of business uh, in the field of politics, but also in the field of higher education
0: that's that's fascinating and I think that one of the big gaps that I always saw in certainly American understanding of of China, but probably more more broadly was this lack of knowledge really about what other interactions are taking place between China and the world. Like there's there's a tendency, for example, you you, you talked just now about these cooperative arrangements, right, between your university and the university in, in in Harbin, and we tend to focus too much, for example, on the issues that are taking place with uh, American universities in in China, and that's of course logical you know there's there's going to be a strong interest in that but i think that unfortunately the story often ends there like well you know things are becoming harder for us universities that want to operate uh campuses in in, in china and and there's not enough of of that understanding that at the same time there there's this deepening relationship right between in, i mean in this particular case between russia and china but perhaps also other um Relationships that are that are taking place, and and I feel that there there, there might be a risk there, of um, as I said, of, of creating a, a blind spot that results in a uh, uninformed view of of things that are that are taking place. Before we 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 end, uh, I I would like to to focus on 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 Russia more more specifically. I think you are our first guest who's. In Russia, we've 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 interviewed a couple of Russians who who live overseas, but I think you're you're our first uh, Russia-based guest. So, well, I'd like to take advantage of this opportunity to ask you just for some general observations on on the Russian legal system in general terms. You know, I'm wondering, for example, uh, about the structure. Uh, I know that that Russia is a very diverse country with different uh, political entities that that form it could you give us a, just an overview of of how the russian legal system works uh you know what the court structure is like and and just some maybe some key points that that we should we you know that that international lawyers should know about at least the very basics of what they should know about the russian legal system
1: well uh russian legal system uh is quite uh characteristic for any civil law system So the law itself takes root from the Roman and German legislation. For example, our civil code has very much in common with the German code. Uh, As to the system, so we have the parliament. Uh, It consists of two parts, the the Duma, uh, which has the the right to propose a bill. And uh, finally, the bill is approved by the president. There are quite few uh, bodies who have the legislative initiative, normally the deputies of the Duma, the Senate, the President, and the courts, as far as uh, the, their competence is concerned. Um, it's very good that we have codes, so uh, all the laws almost are codified in each branch, almost in each branch of law. And I would say, for those who do comparative law, this is just you know the the gift from the gods because it is much easier to operate within a codified legal system than within the, um, let's say, Anglo-Saxon legal system or the system where laws are not codified. Another key thing that mostly uh, all laws are approved on the level of the Federation. And uh, normally, in the majority of spheres, the subjects of Russian Federation have very little competence. So the major regulation is adopted on the federal level, uh, which is also very good for, perhaps it's not that good for the regions, but it's very good for the researchers. Um, As for the the subjects, we have around 90 subjects. Uh, um, They have different um, scope of power, I would say. So for example, republics may have their own constitution. They have a little bit more power. While such regions as, for example, just regions as Leningrad Oblast, where I live, is close to St. Petersburg, they have a little bit less. We have the court system, where the main part is the Supreme Court, then we have Cassation Courts, Appellate Courts, and um, uh, Courts in, in, in the cities. Um, we have the Constitutional Court, which moved uh, from Moscow to Saint Petersburg, and now is based in the historical bu- buildings on the Senate Square in the very center of Saint Petersburg. Uh, the Constitutional Court has the right to um, consider the legislation, and even, well, we can say, review it. So the, those norms which were considered as unconstitutional by the court, they cannot be implemented anymore. And normally the legislator is working quite uh, efficiently and uh, adopting relevant no- uh, laws to amend the legislation, which was considered as unconstitutional quite um, quite soon. Well, it depends, but normally it's like that. And I think that if I had two minutes for delivering you the introduction into Russian law, this is it.
0: No that's 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 fantastic and as I as I listened um to your explanation I thought we we will need to have someone at some point where we focus on, on these issues you know thank you for that introduction and and we'll we'll use that as a as a starting point for for future explorations and thank you thank you very much for for your time and for for joining us one last thing before we let you go do you have any uh recommendations for our listeners
1: With great pleasure. Uh, I would recommend to watch the documentary, well, it's very famous because it's received Oscar, uh, American Factory. It's a documentary about the creation of a factory by Chinese business in the U.S. Perhaps you've watched it, have you?
0: I have, and that's a fantastic recommendation, which I will endorse.
1: And uh, you know, I've asked my students to watch it before the start of the course of international labor law, and it cre- the fact that they watched it and they had a lot of questions, and we discussed it with so much pleasure because it shows all the problems which you already referred to today, the difference of cultures, the difference of perception of many things, the difference between Chinese and U.S. and and so on. And another thing which is also relevant to my sphere of interest. It's a book which I've recently read. Uh, the author is also the Nobel uh, winner in literature, uh, Mario Ljosa. Uh The title is The Dream of a Celt. It uh, tells the, life, the story of life of Roger Casement. Uh, he worked for the British Empire and he was the one to discover the horrors uh, of treatment of local people in Congo and of treatment of local people in Peru while they were working for the enterprises, about people who were forced to work, about different cruel things which happened there. So basically, it's about forced labor, and also it is about the opportunity of the international society to challenge the way of things, which even took place in the beginning of the 20th century.
0: I absolutely endorse the, both of those. My own recommendation, and I was actually going to bring it up during the conversation because I thought there was some relevance there, but I decided to to just um, just leave it for the end. I, I finally got around to watching Squid Game. I, I have to say, it it, it is great. I, I know it, I, I'm always very careful or, or wary, I should say, of anything that has a lot of hype. You know, when people are talking too much about something, I think I have this natural defensive streak to say hmm is it really going to be that good but i think it's 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 great and there are some very serious issues being being addressed that really go to um to what you some of the things you were mentioning earlier uh, about the the need for for certain protections and and what can happen when the right balance is is not found in, in when it comes to, to to protecting the the average citizen so on that note elena thank you very much. Thank you very much for, for, for your time. Greatly enjoyed our, our conversation. It's
1: a great session. Thank you for the invitation.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.